her Bible, please open it to the book of James. James chapter 1. When the alarm clocks go off this upcoming Wednesday morning in our country, what will the American people wake up to? What do you think? Many Americans will wake up to excitement, a self-righteous sense of victory. Others will wake up to disappointing defeat to fear, and probably to anger. But what about you, believer? What are you going to wake up to? On Wednesday morning, will the Father still be good? On Wednesday morning, will he still be sovereign over his creation? On Wednesday morning, will he still be king? On Wednesday morning, What would be revealed is your real source of peace and security. On Wednesday morning, what will the unbelievers in our country see from the church? Salt and light or unbelief and idolatry? Which? Which? As a believer, when you step into that booth, on Tuesday, and wake up on Wednesday morning, your only claim is this. This is all my peace. This is all my hope. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only those who have saving faith in Christ can make this claim and have this real hope and peace and righteousness. And if you have seven faith in Jesus, then that means you have been birthed by the word of God, the word of truth, the gospel. That you should be a kind of first fruits of God's creation. Hey, John, can you mute these here? I don't like hearing myself. so It's weird. (laughs) You know how to do it? Don't worry, I got more for you in the sermon. (laughs) That's the way, it's coming. (laughs) It's just the floor monitors. Okay. James, in his letter, he desires for believers to live like they're God's first fruit. That is, you living out your faith. For all of us ought to be growing more and more into the people that God wants us to be. This is what John has, James has been teaching us. You know, from faith in trials, faith in wisdom, faith in life circumstances, faith in temptation. And this morning, we're going to talk about faith in the word. Faith in the word. So if you have your Bible, open it to James 1, beginning in verse 19. Now, this is God's word, not mine, so... If you don't like it, take it up with him. (laughs) Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently in his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, perse- and, pres- pres- and preserves and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all he does. Please pray with me. Father God, this is your truth. This is your word. It's perfect. It's true. It's without error. And it's what we need as your people. I don't expect pagans to bow down to your word. I don't expect unbelievers to adhere to your scriptures. But I do expect your people to, which includes me, that it is our life source. It is where we go to. It is our standard. It is life to us. It's more than just a book to sit up on a shelf or a coffee table. It is food for our souls. And I pray that we would see it as such, as believers. And we need your spirit, Lord, to move. We need him to take what is preached and apply it to our hearts. So spirit, as I pray every week, we need you to come and be in our midst. And I know that you will. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In, the, in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 25, James, he moves to a different topic when it comes to living out of faith. And that is, he deals with the word of God. The faith and the word. What does it mean? How they work together. And at first, he begins with sort of a riddle and a proverb that, that deals with how a believer ought to be. And second, he goes into the, something that is very essential to believers. Something that we need in order to be who we ought to be and to do the things we need to do. So the riddle, what is it about? Verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He begins with a command. And James, throughout the book of James, he has a lot of commands. If you know anything about his book, he has a lot of them. That's why some people don't like him, because he's always up in your face at times about how you ought to be and what you ought to do. And he's at it again in this verse. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. James, with brotherly affection, is calling you to pay attention to something he's getting ready to say. He wants you to know it, to take it to heart. And there are three things he wants you to know. And not just to know them, but to act upon them. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, before your mind starts to think about all the people who need to hear this sermon, (laughs) let's begin with you first. You first. These words from James are meant for your character, who you ought to be. You ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. First, to be quick to hear. This is listening with with haste, wasting no time. This is you being in a hurry to listen. Being fast, not dragging your feet when it comes to listening to what is said to you. It involves you listening carefully 
intently, focusing on what has been said to you without staring off into space or interrupting. To listen like this requires self-control and wisdom. And where are you? Are you a quick listener? Are you quick to hear? Or are you quick to tune others out and to talk over them and through them? Recently, my daughter and I, we've we got into some discussions. I call them discussions. Which I will start talking over her and not really listening to what she's saying to me. And she, being a tool of God's sanctification in my life, will call me out on it. You know, she would say, Daddy, you're not listening to me. You won't let me say anything. You know, after she would say that to me, I would say, yes, baby, you're right. I'm not listening, and I won't let you say anything. So tell me. Tell me what you want to say. You, you see, you, you can't really listen to people if you're talking over and through them. You can't. There's a second thing James tells us. You, you ought to be slow to speak. Yes, I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, I'm going to leave here with some sore feet today. And I'm, I will too. Being slow to speak, it means you have a delay or a hesitation when it comes to your words. It, it means you, don't, you have a patience. You are patient before you speak. You listen before you speak. You carefully think through the things you're going to say. Is you not having a loose tongue. Or unrestrained tongue. But it's you actually having control over your speech. And not the other way around. Proverbs 29, 20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Like with listening, this requires self-control and wisdom. Are you slow to speak? Or do you have an uncontrolled tongue? Does your tongue write checks that can't be cashed, basically? Who are you this morning? Who am I this morning? You ought to be one who practices being quick to hear and slow to speak. And thirdly, James says, you ought to be slow to anger. Now, this is not a righteous anger. This is not some outburst of frustration because you're in a difficult circumstances, circumstances. But it's an anger that's much, much deeper than that. It's a deep-seated type of anger, almost like wrath and rage. You having a hot temper. Uncontrolled emotions, resentment, anger with the intent to cause harm or punishment to another person. Is this you? A person who can't control their anger. Are you a little teapot? When you get all steamed up, everyone hears you shout. Which are you? Like the other two, being slow to anger also requires self-control and wisdom. I hope you see that these three things are interconnected with each other. And all three can be a reflection of your character. Your anger can lead you to have a loose tongue. It prevents you from listening to other people. So what, you may be asking yourself. Why is James making such a big deal 
about me listening and controlling my speech and, and controlling my anger. You know, why should I be a person who strives to practice these things? He answered that why question in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Let those words jump up and down your feet. For the anger of man, your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God here is referring to the way of life he requires of his people. And our anger never produces those things in our life. In word, deed, and thought, we are to be a reflection of him on, him on earth. Your anger, your rage, your resentment does not reflect him at all. Remember what the type of anger James is talking about here. It's a deep-seated type of anger. It's sinful anger. And what does Jesus say about that type of anger in Matthew 5? Have you heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not murder? Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What do you think Jesus is saying there? That my anger breaks the sixth commandment. That my anger is a form of murder. As one believer says, anger is the first steps to murder. Are you taking those steps? Are you walking those steps? Who do you murder on a daily basis with your anger, through your harsh speaking, through your cutting tongue? Is it a boss, a neighbor, relative, spouse, your kids, someone who differs than you politically? Who? Please realize that this type of anger will not produce the kind of relationships, the kind of marriages, and the kind of lifestyle that God requires for his people. Never. But do you believe this? Do you believe it? The anger that man, the anger of man will not produce the righteousness of God. Look at how many professing Christians have been behaving during this election process. I'll see it. I see it on my Facebook page. They have quotes about how they love Jesus, and they have little nasty quotes about politics, about the other candidate. Has it been quick to hear? Has it been slow to speak? Has it been slow to anger? No, it's pretty much been the reverse of that. Quick to anger, quick to speak, and slow to hear. And the way some of us have been behaving, or the way some of our brothers and sisters have been behaving during this election process has not been producing the righteousness that God requires. Do you believe that? But I'm on Jesus' team here. Really? Really? Is that what the Bible teaches you how to act and to behave? So what are you to do? Verse 21 says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. These words here should cause you to see that your anger is part of your old person. The old man or woman, your old nature, your flesh, your sinful nature. 
And one believer said you should be hesitant as believers to allow your anger to settle into something that you nurse because it will control you. If you treat your anger like a baby, you cuddle it, you nurse it, you pet it, you feed it, in the end, it will own you. You won't own it. Know that. And when your anger owns you, everything sets you off. Trivial things will set you off. I didn't get the last slice of pizza, so you blow up. She cut me off. Blow up. What takes you so long to get dressed? You blow up about that. People who are controlled by their anger would die on every hill. Every situation is one of life and death. You take a knife for everything. And there's something behind our anger. And it's what one person says. It says our anger is often a burden, is often burdened with self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, and stubbornness. In other words, it smells like selfishness and self-centeredness. That's what's behind our anger because we just don't get our way. And that is sin. And it's not who Jesus redeemed you to be. Therefore, says James, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Another way to read this phrase is having put off those things. It implies that that we have set aside our old way of life, our old lifestyle, or in the process of doing so. Here James wants us to fight against wearing the dirty clothes that belongs to your old life. Because we sometimes keep them in the closet and then we put them on when it's convenient. But James is saying you got to fight against that. Sin no longer is our master. We know that. But sin still remains. The clothes are still there. And a lot of times we wear them. We wear them. But James is saying you got to fight against that. You got to take off those filthy clothes that smells like sin and, and excess wickedness, which includes our anger, any type of sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. I love this. A lot of folks think James and Paul are, are, are totally different, but they are the same. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, your old self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Think about that. Who you used to be was crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died, has set us free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. This is what James is talking about. 
agreeing with what Paul is saying. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. That's what he means when he says, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. See, keep in mind, James is not talking about how you come to faith. Paul talks a lot about that in his letters, how what saves you and, and what makes us right with God. James is talking to Christians who are already right with God. He's showing you the implications of that. If I have saving faith in Christ, then it means something in my life. It means something. And this is what James is showing you. He's showing you what it means. You live out your faith. And part of living out your faith is having a growing distaste for your own sin and a growing taste for the things of God. A growing distaste for your sin, however it looks, pride, self-righteousness, immorality, wherever it is, you have a growing distaste of it, but a growing taste of the things of God. But how? How, how, how does that happen, Alice? How, how do I grow in having those things? How do I grow in having a distaste for my anger and a growing taste for the things of God? James tells us here, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. You see, the, the word of God is essential. It's more than just a book. It's more than just something you just Talk about in Bible studies and, and, and just and talk about it. It's, it's life, people. It's food. But are you starving spiritually? When the last time you ate from the buffet of his word? When? If you're going to be live like the first fruit of God, you can't do it without his word. You have to receive it. See, now James, his head's up in the clouds. He fully knows that as a believer, you're going to struggle with sin. He knows that. He is simply challenging you to fight. Teaching you how to fight against the filth and wickedness of our flesh. God's word through the spirit does that. In verse 21, his, his, his emphasis is on you receiving the word with humility. The word is implanted in you. When a person comes to seven faith in Christ, God through his spirit implants his word in that person's heart at conversion. And through the work of the spirit, the word begins to take root in your heart. It begins to grow in you. So James wants you to now receive that implanted word with humility. Don't fight against it. Don't compromise it. Don't abuse it. Don't abandon it. But listen to it, study it, read it, memorize it, meditate on it. Receive the word as the standard by which you base everything in your life upon. All other standards are beneath this standard. Everything is beneath it. I don't care what unbelievers say. I don't care how good they sound. If it does not line up with this, then it's beneath this will always be beneath it. I don't care how nice they are. This is our standard as God's people. And here's the thing. You can't hold unbelievers to this because they can't see that. The church is expected to do that. And shame on us when we don't. 
We should be convicted when we don't. It is what it is what you run to to make sense of the world around you. It is what shapes your view of life. What do you what what shapes your view of life? What shapes your view of family? What shapes your view of work? What shapes your view of politics? What shapes everything about you? If it's not this, it's something. It's this alone. It's not this plus. It's not this plus Oprah. It's not this plus Democratic Party. It's not this plus Republican Party. It's this and this alone. That's what I mean by that. It's not this and every other thing else. It's not this and every other helps book, help self book. It's the word of God alone. Alone. And we often compromise that. Because it has to be the word plus something else. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is living and active. I love this. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What other word can do that? What other book can do that? What other document can do that? Nothing. Nothing can do that. But this, receive the implanted word with humility, also means you allow it to encourage you. You allow it to refresh you. You allow it to comfort you, to correct you, to rebuke you, to teach you, to convict you. You allow it to be your surgeon and your physician at the same time for your Christian life. At times, it's going to put you up on the table. It's going to cut you up and say, you messed up, brother. But at the same time, it's going to sew you back up. It is what you need for the rest of your life. And if you don't go to the doctor, you're going to get sick. Go to the doctor. That is why Jesus, James says the word is able to save your souls. The word, he means the word continues to transform you, continues to move you more into the image of Christ and, and to live how, the life he wants you to live. See, you don't just receive it at conversion. You think the only time you need this is when you become a believer? That the only time I need to read it is that conversion? The only time I need the gospel is that one time when I came to Jesus. You need it throughout your life. You need it throughout your life. It continues to work in you. We have two large maple trees in our front yard. Part of me love them and part of me don't like them. You know why I don't like them? Because the roots and maple trees don't stay on the ground. They They come up to the surface and they're all over my yard. I don't like that. You see, the word of God is a maple tree to you. When it takes root in your heart, it should be rising outside your heart into every area of your life. And you know what? Sometimes you ain't going to like it. You ain't going to like it. You know why you ain't going to like it? Because it's going to sometimes cause you to do things you don't want to do. Challenge you to do things you don't want to do. Show you things about yourself that you really don't want to see. It's a maple tree. And it overflows in every area of your life, which means you're not just a receiver of the word and a hearer of the word. We're also called to be doers of God's word. Verse 22. But be doers of the word 
not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James, again, is up front in our face here as a brother in the Lord, challenging us. Don't just hear the word, but do the word. This is the word producing fruit in your life. It produces in you the life that God requires. As one believer says, it is becoming rather than being that is an issue. Naming, turning profession of faith into action. Turning a profession of faith into action. This is you growing and seeing how profitable the word is for your life, and you apply it. This is more than you talking about theology. It's more than you talking about the Bible. It's more than you talking in Christian language and having quiet times and coming to church each Sunday. It's you being intentional about ordering your life around God's word. You study it to apply it, people. You hear it to apply it. You memorize it to apply it. Your faith must lead to deeds. And your theology must always be practical. It's not, it's useless. It's useless. What good is theology if it doesn't do anything in my life? It's just knowledge. It must be practical. Now another Christian says, I knew I had to use this when I read it. A hearer cannot call a sermon excellent unless it leaves a tangible spiritual gain in its wake. When you tell me my sermon is excellent, is it because of how I deliver it or is it because the Spirit spoke to you? One is right and one is wrong. One is right, one is wrong. If you are not becoming a doer of the word, then we are deceiving ourselves. Self-deception. Think about that. We deceive ourselves if we think we can just hear the word and then apply it. Self-deception. And James compares it to a man who sees himself in the mirror, his natural face. As soon as he leaves the mirror, he forgets what he looks like. That don't even make any sense. That's his point. That's the point he wanted to make. How can you come to the word of truth and it tells you what you ought to do and you don't do it? If you are a believer, God's word is like a mirror. So what a mirror does, a mirror reflects who you are and also can reveal things about your appearance that you may need to fix up, particularly if you get up early in the morning and you got stuff in your eye. So a mirror reflects who you are and it reveals flaws. God's word does the same thing. It does. When you open up his truth, it's going to reveal things about your life that you may need to confess. Sins you need to confess and repent of. Things that you need to correct. It's going to reveal your issues. It's going to reveal your junk, like your anger, your loose tongue. Hearers only of the word will see that and do nothing about it. They just walk away. It goes in one ear, out the other. But now a mirror... It not only reveals, it also reflects who you are. What does the word reflect about you as a believer? 
It's congregation participation. When you read the word, what does it reflect about you? Come on, don't be shy. Show, shows you up. Okay. Anything else? Lack of faith. Okay. Anything else? Blind spots. Okay. Okay. Shows you that. What else? Changes that need to be made. Our hearts. All right. Most of those things you said is just what the mirror reveals. But what it should reflect back to you is who you are in Christ. Where do you go to learn about the fact that you are in strive on his hands? Where do you go to know that you are his most treasured possession? Where do you go to learn about you being his first fruit? Where do you go to learn about the fact that he chose you out of all the people of the world? Where? The word. How often do you go to the word for the word to reflect that of you? Because realize, the father don't see you as you see yourself. He sees the blood over you. Remember that. In his eyes, he sees Jesus over you. And when you go to the word, you need to ask him to show you that too. To show you not just your sin, but to show you that in Christ you have been redeemed. That sin is no longer your master. It is no longer your daddy. It no longer has power over you. That you are unified with Christ, a child of the Most High. The word should reflect that back to you as well. Doers of the word, I believe, understand that. They understand that side of God's word. Not just it reveals my junk, but it also reveals what the Father respects of me and who I am in light of what I struggle with. Doers of the word, they see the perfect law and the law of liberty. They don't, it's not a hindrance to their freedom. But it's just the guardrails to their freedom. What I mean by that, we have freedom in Christ, but there are guardrails in that freedom. It sets the course of that freedom. That's what his word does. It's not to make your life boring. It's just simply the guardrails. Why don't you let your kids play in the road? Because you want to hold them back? You don't want little Johnny to be all he could be? No, because you don't want to get hit by a car. That's why the Father sets guardrails for you. It's because he loves you like you love little Johnny. If he didn't love little Johnny, if he didn't love you, he wouldn't give you the guardrails. It's for your benefit. Remember, this is not for his benefit. It's for the benefit of his people, which, is, which includes you. When Waikita and I went through premarital counseling, our counselors had us write out something called a Magna Carta of our marriage or family. It was basically a, you know, the shipment charter, the shipment constitution for how we were going to do family, how we were going to do in-laws, how we were going to fight, how we were going to discipline the kids. And the Christian life has its own Magna Carta, and it's God's word. It's God's word. That's your Magna Carta. How I want to do family, 
how I'm going to uh, raise my kids, how, how I view these things, this should do it. You just should desire and strive to align every area of your life according to his word, which is a light unto your feet and a light unto your path. Let us pray. Father God, I need your word, not just so I can write sermons and Bible studies and Sunday school lessons, but I need it to grow. I need it for my own self. A friend of mine often tells me, don't forget to feed your own heart, Alex, because ministry will burn you out. My prayer, Lord, for us and for myself is that we will feed our hearts, that we will feast upon your truth. There will be more to us than just some book, but, Lord, we will truly see it as something that is essential to our life, to our well-being, and that your spirit will empower us to not just listen to it and study it and memorize it, but, Lord, we will apply it in our lives. Husbands will apply it to, to, to being to their lives and being husbands and fathers. Women will apply it in their lives to being good spouses and a good wife and a good mom. And the same for our kids, Lord. And we need your spirit to do that. We need your spirit to do that. And so as we go out, Lord, this week and engage in life, let us know where our troop hope lies. Let us know that we represent him. Let us know, Lord, we have an opportunity this week to be a witness to Christ for those who don't know him. We're going to have all the opportunities on Wednesday to share the gospel, to speak up. And I pray that you give all of us boldness to speak up and to point them to the one true source of hope and peace and righteousness. In Christ's name I pray. pray. Amen.